All right, we can go ahead and get started again so that we can try to keep on a semblance of schedule. Um, it occurred to me a few minutes ago that actually all three of our Catholic speakers were baptized as Catholics and then spent time in various evangelical traditions and then came back to the Catholic Church. Um, so it's true of Matthew and now... Um, it's also true of our next speaker, Dr. Eduardo Echeverria. Um, the Dr. Echeverria was born in Mexico but raised in New York. And he is a professor of philosophy and theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. And while on vacation in his early 20s, I mentioned that he was baptized a Catholic, but while on vacation in 20s, in his 20s, not in the 20s, sorry. Um, he was traveling in Europe and he was introduced to the La Abre Fellowship and its founder, Francis Schaeffer, um, in Switzerland. And so for the uninitiated, La Abre communities, from a French word meaning shelter, were study centers in Europe, Asia, and America where individuals would have the opportunity to seek answers to honest questions about God and the significance of human life. And sort of the hallmark of these societies is the idea of Christian worldview and that Christianity speaks to all aspects of life. Um, Francis Schaeffer is famous for his book, I might try not to butcher it, How Then Shall We Live, um, and about this topic. So anyway, it was during this time the Dr. Echeverria um, became a committed Christian, and he experienced a life-changing conversion of heart and committed his life to Christ. And coming back to America, he became a committed Calvinist, and in particular of the Dutch Reformed tradition. And though he was Reformed, he was always looking for something a little um, richer in the church's liturgy and sacramental life. And so he ended up being received back into the Catholic Church after a long series of study and prayer that I'm sure he would be able to tell a whole other talk just on that. And his academic journey is as varied as his personal journey in that he has a B.A. in philosophy from Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois. He received dual doctorates in systematic theology and philosophy from the Free University in Amsterdam. I was going to say, it sounds like Bernie Sanders at every university is free, but no. Um, and then he also received his licentiate in sacred theology from the Angelicum University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome. He has written extensively on ecumenism and is one of the most thoughtful speakers on ecumenism in the entire country. And as well as he has written on various other topics as well. Um, he's published already over six different books, including Divine Election, A Catholic Orientation and Dogmatic and Ecumenical Perspective, which is exactly on topic with this conference, Pope Francis and the Legacy of Vatican II, Burkauer and Catholicism Disputed Questions, In the Beginning of Theology of the Body, A Dialogue of Love, Confessions of an Evangelical Catholic Ecumenist, and he has um, currently in... Um, getting ready to come out, History and Truth and Ecumenical Hermeneutics of Creeds and Confessions. And the articles that he's written, it took me two full pages in the booklet to be able to even list them out. And that was just the recent articles. So, needless to say, he's a man with a lot of good stuff to say. So, we're happy to have Dr. Eduardo Echeverria.
Thank you for the invitation and for being here. And what I'd like to do is to make some introductory comments that will lead me really to the main introductory comments about Vatican I and Vatican II that will lead me to the main question that I want to address, and that is whether the Catholic Counter-Reformation is over. Whether the Catholic Counter-Reformation is over. And um, given the time constraints that we have, I, I, I tend not to say I will argue, but I will argue in this morning address that it is over in light of the Church's ecumenical stance of receptive ecumenism, uh, I'll say more about receptive ecumenism in a moment, but just very quickly, receptive ecumenism is more than just an exchange of ideas. Um, it's not just about being better informed about each other, but receptive ecumenism involves the notion that, that ecumenical conversation is really an exchange of gifts uh, I like to put it this way, in, in, in very practical terms, that I can be discipled, have been discipled by Francis Schaeffer, by uh, in the Dutch tradition, uh, Abraham Kuyper and Hermann Bavink and, and Burkhauer. Uh, I've been discipled by them because they have deepened my understanding of the Catholic faith. Uh, but I think also the underlying ecclesiology of uh, of uh, the Second Vatican Council, I think, also lends itself to uh, the, the answering the question whether the Catholic Counter-Reformation is over with a, a, a yes. But let me begin by just making some uh, comments, uh, some introductory comments. I actually have a book coming out on this, so I'm going to be very, I could be very long, but I'm going to be very brief. Um, let me begin with two, two, uh, two quotes. One from the decree on ecumenism, Unitatis Red Integratio, the, the restoration of unity, the Second Vatican Council document on ecumenism, where, where it states, all Catholics are led to examine their own faithfulness to Christ's will for the church and accordingly to undertake with vigor the task of renewal and reform. Christ summons the church to continual reformation as she sojourns here on earth. Thus, if in various times and circumstances there have been deficiencies in the way that the church teaching has been formulated to be carefully distinguished from the deposit of faith itself, these can and should be set right at the opportune moment." End of quote. And then a short statement from um, the uh, Calvinist philosopher, English philosopher, Paul Helm, he, he, he writes, a church semper reformanda is enjoying both continuity and change. The Second Vatican Council focused not only on the dynamics of the hermeneutics, so the interpretive framework for reform and renewal in the life of the church, but also on the development in her understanding of the truth. This is evident in the quotation uh, from Vatican II's decree on ecumenism that I just read. Elsewhere in the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, Dei Verbum, Word of God, we read, 
For there is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words of divine revelation which have been handed down. For as the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly moves forward toward the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment in her. End of quote there. Pope Benedict XVI in his now famous 2005 Christmas address to the Roman Curie called this hermeneutics of Vatican II, the hermeneutics of reform, of renewal, he, he, he stated, in the continuity of the one subject church which the Lord has given to us. She is a subject which increases in, in time and develops, yet always remaining the same, the one subject of the journeying people of God. The hermeneutics of reform, of continuity and renewal uh, that, uh, that the Council is talking about, that, that Benedict is talking about, um, I'm going to call Lorenian hermeneutics. Lorenian, L-E-R-I-N-I-A-N, since I don't have a board, uh, L-E-R-I-N-I-A-N, the, the namesake of this hermeneutics, of this interpretive framework, uh, is uh, Vincent of Lorenz, who was a 5th century uh, monk in his commonatorium primum. Uh, and this, this hermeneutics is really a hermeneutics of creative retrieval, creative retrieval, as I'll say. The Lorenian hermeneutics is arguably based on the distinction between truth and its historically conditioned formulations, between form and content, truth content, and context in some, the distinction between propositions and sentences. This distinction between propositions and sentences and the others was implied by John XXIII in his opening address at Vatican II. He, 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 he read there, he stated there, for the deposit of faith, the truth contained in our sacred teaching are one thing the mode in which they are expressed, but with the same meaning and the same judgment, idem sensu, idemque sententia. Sententia has to do with judgment, sensus, of course, with meaning, and so it has to keep the same meaning and the same judgment. This judgment has to do with truth, so the same, uh, the same thing has to be asserted. These are two different things, formulations, truth, but even when you formulate it differently, the different formulation has to keep the same meaning and the same judgment. The French ecclesiologist, Catholic ecclesiologist from the last century, who was also a key figure at the Council, Yves Congar, a Dominican, for one has argued that this distinction summarizes the meaning of the entire Council. Although the truths of faith may be expressed differently, we must always determine whether these new formulations are preserving the same meaning and the same judgment. Again, idem sensu, idem que sententia. And hence, preserving the material continuity, identity, and universality of these truths. Vatican II's Lorenian hermeneutics is arguably a form of retrieval theology, uh, meaning thereby a, a mode or style of theological discernment that looks back to authoritative sources of faith in order to move forward. As Kevin Van Hooser, the evangelical theologian 
Kevin Van Hooser correctly states, he uses the French word, which is a key word for the Nouvelle Théologie of, of, of uh, Congar and de Lubac and, and Donalou and Balthazar and, and, and even Rahner. Uh, ressourcement, going back to the authoritative sources of faith, describes a return to those sources for the sake of revitalizing the present, says Van Hooser. Indeed, he adds, on the one hand, we ought not to confuse retrieval with either retrenchment, so a citadel mentality, we're sort of going behind the drawbridge into the castle and interacting uh, with people only by throwing stones over the drawbridge. Um, so it's not a citadel mentality, it's not retrenchment, but nor is it repristination, a, a, a sort of a mere confessionalism. Rather, the main purpose, says Van Hooser, of retrieval is the revitalization of biblical interpretation theology in the church today. To retrieve, he says, is to look back creatively in order to move forward faithfully. I believe that Vatican II's Lerinian hermeneutics is of ecumenical significance. Uh, the Dutch master of ecumenical and dogmatic theology, uh, Gerrit Cornelius Berkauer, 1903 to 1996, recognized this hermeneutics ecumenical significance almost a half a century back. And he says, um, one of the most important questions that has repeatedly engaged the intention of the church throughout the centuries pertains to the truth, validity, and the meaning of her confessions. Is it a question in the confessions of a clear unchangeability of truth, or is it rather a question of development? And in that sense, does the expression of these confessions also have a changing element that betrays the influence of specific times, he asked. This question is closely related especially to the much-discussed development of dogma in Roman Catholic theology. End of quote. Burkhauer takes ownership of, of, he says, the problem with which the Theologie Novelle, so again, Theologie Novelle, Novelle Theologie referring to the French Catholic uh, movements of ressourcement, of creative retrieval of the authoritative sources of the faith, Congar, Donalou, uh, Balthazar, um, Henri de Lubac, and many others, they were all almost all of them were at the council. Um, Burkhauer takes ownership of the problem with which the Theologie Novelle, within the boundaries of infallible dogma, he said, struggled. He adds, this problem is certainly for us not a false problem. This is the perennial problem, Burkhauer wrote, of the relationship between truth and its human expression. This is the problem of variable, historically defined thought forms in different eras, when all kinds of philosophical notions have played a definite role. What is the relationship between unchanging truth and theological formulations and doctrinal choices? End of quote there. Indeed, according to Burkhauer, recognizing the ecumenical significance of the Theologie Novelle means taking up, he says, quote, the challenge of finding a hermeneutics for reinterpreting the affirmations of the church. And this is a hermeneutics that involves explaining the continuity or material identity of Christian truth despite the profound effects of historicity, according to Burkhauer. Again, Burkhauer is here 
referring us back to the Lorenian hermeneutics, to John the 23rd's uh, statement that I quoted a moment ago, which was a statement uh, that was referring us back to Vatican I, um, quoting Vincent, Vatican I was quoting, quoting Vincent of Lorenz, the 5th century monk theologian, from his Comunitorium Primum, chapter 32, section 3, where, where Vincent is concerned to, to uh, address the question or answer the question whether there is progress in religion. Is there progress in religion, he says. And then he makes a careful distinction between progress and change. Change is when, when one thing becomes something else. Progress is organic, uh, 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 it's organic developmental, it is homogeneous development, there's continuity, but not without discontinuity, not without discontinuity. And so then the quote that John the 23rd, uh, 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 when he said, when he distinguished between the uh, uh, dogmatic truths and their formulation, and then the formulations have to keep the same meaning and the same judgment. This is, this is exactly what Vincent of Lorenz says, that there can be progress, but it has to be within the bounds of the dogma, uh, keeping the same meaning and the same judgment, he says. So when we say this is what it means, at the end of the day, the church says, and we hold it to be true. We make an assertion, we make a judgment, because judgment has to do with truth. And, and even in the midst of continuity, it's not mere continuity, there has to be in development deepening our understanding. Now, although Van Hooser acknowledges that Ressourcement is generally associated with Vatican II and, and the Nouvelle Theologie, he fails to understand, unlike Burkhauer, that his hermeneutics for reinterpreting the affirmations of the Church is reminiscent of their hermeneutics, particularly the French Jesuit, Henri Bouillard, who held that, quote, since truth resides not in the concept but in the judgment, the councils do not sanction notions but propositions. Similarly, Van Hooser writes, that to, which, that to which theologians must attend in Scripture is not the words and concepts so much as the patterns of judgment, he says. Christian doctrine deserves a pattern of judgment present in the biblical text. To make a judgment is to form an opinion about something or to make an assessment about some situation. I agree, he says, with David Yego, that the same judgment can be rendered in a variety of conceptual terms, or the same proposition can be expressed in, in a variety of sentences, sentences within the same language or sentences from different languages. Just very simply, it's possible to say it's raining, it's possible to say it's raining, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in English, uh, but it's also possible to say it in French, in German, in Spanish, in Vietnamese, in, in Swahili, Afrikaans, whatever. The judgment about Christ, says Van Hooser, that Nicaea rendered in terms of homoousian, for example, went beyond what Philippians 2 says about Christ's equality with God. The concepts of Nicaea are not those of Philippians. Yet, the judgment, what is predicated about the subject Christ, is the same. Doctrine concerns judgment, not concepts. Similarly, doctrine concerns propositions, not sentences. In short, Van Hooser holds that theology may move beyond the words, he says, and concepts of the Bible, but not beyond its underlying pattern of judgments. Now, 
Um, just one other thing. One could say that what I'm now going to say is, is a sort of a direct response to Van Hooser, because later on, some of you may have read his recent book, Biblical Authority After, After Babel. Um, in his recent book, he argues that Catholicism as such cannot embrace a hermeneutics of creative retrieval. He approvingly cites in his recent book the claims of, uh, I don't know how he does that, but Robert McAfee Brown, a 1968 book, who insists that Catholic ecclesiology and its corresponding notion of the church's teaching authority is such that its position is, quote, incompatible with the notion that the church is semper reformanda, always to be reformed. Van Hooser adds, this position, quote, along with the teaching about the indefectibility of the church, effectively forecloses the possibility of reforming the church's teaching. And again, he, he approvingly cites Brown. Roman Catholicism, he says, has become master of the gospel rather than, its, rather than servant. Now, this by way of an introduction, I, I now, in the light of what I've said, about um, um, creative retrieval, um, ressourcement going back to the authoritative sources of the faith, I, I want to say uh, something now, uh, which is really the main point of my talk, uh, uh, an answer to the question whether the Catholic Counter-Reformation is over. Uh, and again, I have just a, a few sort of quotations uh, one from 1 Corinthians 1.10, uh, where St. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then from Burkhauer's, uh, his, his uh, book, one of his books on Vatican II, uh, he writes, the very mystery of the church invites, rather compels us to ask about the perspective ahead for the difficult way of estrangement and rapprochement of dialogue, contact, controversy, and for the ecumenical striving to overcome the divisions of the church. He adds, our thoughts about the future of the church must come out of tensions in the present, tensions that must creatively produce watchfulness prayer, faith and commitment, love for truth and unity, love for unity and truth, he says. And then lastly, a quote from Gustav Weigel, Weigel who was a, a Jesuit uh, theologian of the last century uh, in uh, the second half. He writes in his book on, on Catholic theology and ecumenism, he writes, if we are to speak to each other, he says, we should know how each partner of the conversation appears to himself. It is antecedently thinkable that the partner in dialogue is in error in his self-evaluation, but it is unthinkable that the intercourse would be fruitful if we did not take such self-evaluation into account. End of quote. Martin Luther's creative retrieval of the gospel in the authoritative sources of faith in order to move faithfully forward in proclaiming the gospel is his significance even today. Luther's retrieval pertained to the renewal of the Catholic Church, indeed the renewal of all of Christianity. 
As Kevin Van Hooser, as I said earlier, correctly stated, Ressourcement describes a return to authoritative sources for the sake of revitalizing the present. Huh? Going back is at the same time a moving forward. At its inception, this renewal did not have as a goal the establishment of a new church. Remember, Luther did not post 95 theses on the wall of the Wittenberg Cathedral. He was not against the papacy when, when he posted, when he submitted those theses for conversation and disputation uh, in, academic, uh, in, in an academic context. He was not against even indulgences. He was not against the sacrament of penance. He was against the abuses of indulgences because he held that they, the, the implications that those abuses had for the gospel of grace. Walter Cardinal Casper, in his marvelous book on Martin Luther, wrote, Luther was not thinking of becoming the founder of a separate Reformed church. His goal was the renewal of the Catholic Church from the perspective of the gospel. This evangelical Catholic concern of Luther, of great significance even today, places him in the dynamic of the evangelical Catholic reform movements, of which there have been many in the Catholic Church, uh, that includes, among others, Dominic de Guzman, the, the founder of the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans, Francis of, oh, oh, uh, Francis of Assisi, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, Catherine of Siena, and others. Since Luther did not intend to establish a new church, uh, the late great German theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg has rightly said, the emergence of an independent Lutheran church is not a sign of success. Rather, it signifies the failure of the Reformation. It testified, I go on to say, it testified since, since Protestantism was never unified from the beginning, Luther was already from the start against, uh, well, eventually against uh, Zwingli and, and others. It testified to the vociferous nature of Protestantism, its church-splitting dynamism. Of course, Luther himself contributed to the division of Christianity. To continue with Pannenberg, who says regarding the scandal of divided Christendom, how can we recognize and treat one another as Christian brothers and sisters, yet at the same time say nothing about the full communion with one another? Or as John Paul II put it in his 1995 encyclical, Ut Unum Sint, that they all may be one, how is it possible, the Pope said, to remain divided if we have been buried through baptism in the Lord's death? in the very act by which God, through the death of his son, has broken down the walls of division. So, is the Catholic Counter-Reformation over? I think it is, and I want to explain why. Uh, so my, what remains in my talk, in my, in my address, has three parts. First, I will briefly explain ecumenical dialogue and the attendant notion of receptive ecumenism. And then secondly, I want to address uh, uh, three questions, three questions, all too briefly. And I want to address those questions in light of the confession of the mark of the church. We all confess one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Well, in light of the, the mark of the church, credo in unum ecclesium. And in that context, I want to ask three questions. What is the church? In other words, what's the nature of the church's unity? Secondly, I want to ask, where is the true church most fully manifested? And hence, what is the concrete place of its visible unity? And lastly, most significantly, I want to ask, you'll see 
why I asked this question, how does the true church relate to other communities that also claim to be the church? In other words, how do we think, or how should we think, of the one church of Jesus Christ and the many churches, and hence of unity and diversity in the one church? So my first point, ecumenical dialogue, what is ecumenical dialogue? And it's the attendant notion of receptive ecumenism. Ecumenical dialogue includes conversion and renewal, without which there can be no authentic ecumenism without which there can be no authentic ecumenical dialogue. And as I said earlier at the beginning, ecumenical dialogue is more than an exchange of ideas. I don't have ecumenical dialogue with people because I want to be, merely because I want to be better informed. Of course I want to be better informed. But that's not, that's not, the, 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 that's not the drive. Uh, it, it's an exchange of gifts. The Catholic Church, according to John Paul II, holds Quote, that full visible communion, of course, would have to come about through the acceptance of the whole truth into which the Holy Spirit guides Christ's disciples. Thus, the church's vision of visible unity, quote, takes account of all the demands of revealed truth. Rather than say, quote, I'm just going to do this. Therefore, she seeks to avoid all forms of reductionism. So, for me, a form of reductionism would be to say that somehow ecumenism, nothing that really, that theology and, and doctrine and all that doesn't matter because there's ecumenism in the trenches. Uh, to use the phrase from uh, Father Richard John Newhouse. Ecumenical dialogue avoids all forms of reductionism or facile agreements or false irenicism or indifference to the church's teaching and, and a common denominator Christianity. That's a dead end, common denominator Christianity. Mere Christianity, dead end. John Paul II correctly writes, love for the truth is the deepest dimension of any authentic quest for full communion between Christians. In other words, he adds, the unity willed by God can be attained only by the adherence of all to the content of revealed faith in its entirety. In matters of faith, compromise is in contradiction with God who is truth. In the body of Christ, Christ who is the way and the truth and the life, who would consider legitimate a reconciliation brought about at the expense of the truth? A being together which betrayed the truth would thus be opposed both to the nature of God who offers his communion and to the need for truth found in the depths of every human heart. In short, he adds, authentic ecumenism is a gift at the service of truth. These are some of the presuppositions of an ecumenism of conviction. In this context, let me say something, albeit briefly, after I take a sip here, about the nature and purpose of ecumenical dialogue as it's expressed in the decree on ecumenism and then later on again in John Paul II's encyclical. Most important, an interior conversion of the heart. Indeed, repentance is required as a precondition for engaging in ecumenical dialogue. Why this summons to conversion? Well, the Pope says, Christian unity is possible, provided that we are humbly conscious of having sinned against unity and are convinced of our need for conversion. I often tell my students, it's not the damn Protestants, it's also the damn Catholics. 
In this light, we can understand why an examination of conscience is required for authentic dialogue. Confessing our sins, repentance, putting ourselves by God's grace in that interior space where Christ, the source of the church's unity, can effectively act with all the power of his spirit, the paraclete. The journey of ecumenical dialogue is thus an ongoing dialogue of conversion. John Paul says, again citing the decree, on both sides, trusting in the reconciling power of the truth which is Christ to overcome the obstacles to unity. The ground motive of this dialogue for reconciliation is common prayer with our brothers and sisters who seek unity in Christ and in His Church. Just a, a comment here, I am a brother in Christ uh, with Protestants. Uh, I'm not a co-belligerent. Co-belligerency is a notion that does not recognize Catholics uh, no more than it recognizes uh, Buddhists and Hindus and, and Jews for that matter as, as, as united as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I speak to you as a, to, to my Protestant brethren, I speak to you as a brother in Christ uh, not as a, not as a co-belligerent. You know, we have a common cause in the gospel. Prayer is the soul of the ecumenical renewal and of the yearning for unity, adds John Paul. In short, it is the basis and support for everything the Second Vatican Council defines as dialogue. Prayer is the heart of spiritual ecumenism. Now, sometimes dialogue is made more difficult, indeed impossible, when our words, judgments, and actions manifest a failure to deal with each other with understanding, um, truthfully and fairly. Um, again, when undertaking dialogue, each side must presuppose in the other a desire for reconciliation, for unity and truth. In this connection, Pope Francis urges that dialogue means not only hearing, uh, but recovering the ability to listen and also to read. He links this ability to listen with receptive ecumenism. Remember that ecumenism is an exchange of gifts. Francis writes, it is not just about being better informed about others, he says, but rather about reaping what the Spirit has sown in them, which is also meant to be a gift to us, for us. Through an exchange of gifts, the Spirit can lead us ever more fully into truth and goodness. Furthermore, dialogue must be deepened in order to engage the other person in a relationship of mutual trust and acceptance as a fellow Christian, responsive to him in Christian love. We must never forget, Francis wrote, that we are pilgrims in Evangelii Gaudium and Apostolic Exhortation. Uh, we must never forget that we are pilgrims journeying alongside one another. This means that we must have sincere trust in our fellow pilgrims putting aside all suspicion or mistrust, and turn our gaze to what we are all seeking, the radiant peace of God's face. A necessary sign of this encounter is that we have passed, John Paul says, from antagonism and conflict to a situation where each party recognizing, recognizes the other as a partner. In the report of the second phase of the ecumenical conversation between the World Alliance of Reformed Churches and the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, three contemporary Reformed attitudes toward the Catholic Church are distinguished. First, there are within the Reformed family those whose attitude to the Roman Catholic Church remains essentially negative. 
Why? Well, first, some because they remain to be convinced that the modern development of the Roman Catholic Church has really addressed the issues of the Reformation. And others, because they have been largely untouched by the ecumenical exchanges of recent times and have therefore not been challenged or encouraged to reconsider their traditional stance. In that respect, I often have, convers have had conversations with people, with uh, Protestants, who seem to still be in the 15th century uh, in the way that they formulate the issues. Uh, uh, as if in 500 years, or even more particularly as if in the last 50 years, where the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity has been in conversation and bilateral dialogues with Methodists, Reformed, Anglicans, and Lutherans, if you want to read a good book on that, Cardinal Casper wrote a book in 2008 called Harvesting the Fruits, where he gives an account of where are we now? What have we learned from each other? Again, this receptive ecumenism, an exchange of gifts, and so on. Uh, others, the third possibility in the Reformed tradition, have sought to engage in a fresh, constructive, and critical evaluation both of the contemporary teaching and practice of the Roman Catholic Church and of the classical controverted issues. I think, I think the only way you can move to the third position uh, is by no longer being an essential Protestant. I distinguish between essential Protestants and accidental Protestants. It's not a distinction that originated with me. It's from Reinhard Hutter, who was, a, was Lutheran, came into full communion with the Catholic Church, taught at Duke, now teaches at the Catholic University of America. But an essential Protestant is someone who regards Catholicism as the other. Catholicism is the other. And his, his stance with, with Catholicism uh, is uh, merely a protest relationship. And, and uh, uh, a, uh, an, an accidental Protestant, he's still a Protestant, there, he's not gonna, he's, it's, not, it's not like he's becoming a Catholic next week, but he is prepared uh, to engage in a fresh, constructive, and critical evaluation both of the contemporary teaching and practice of the Roman Catholic Church and of the classical controverted issues. He sees Catholicism uh, sorry, he sees the Reformation as a renewal movement within the Church Catholica. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, identify the Reformation with Protestantism as such. And so um, he's prepared to have a, a fruitful conversation. He's prepared to engage in an, in an ecumenism, in a receptive ecumenism, an ecumenism where there's an exchange of gifts. In 1958, Birkauer wrote, every kind of Protestantism that stands merely in a protest relationship with Catholicism, that's to me essential Protestantism, is stricken with unfruitfulness. That is why the name Reformation signifies, Birkauer wrote, far more than Protestantism. In what sense is it unfruitful? Well, a protest relationship that is merely out to refute Catholicism is unfruitful because confessional identities degenerate into hardened defensiveness. Divisions, not to say schisms and discords, within the Church of Christ are no longer experienced as distressing, scandalous, let alone sinful. In 1952, Birkauer wrote, we, if you're an essential Protestant, we accept dissension as a fact and we get more and more accustomed to it. This divided church is, he explains, such that the different forms of the church are anything but harmonious. 
They are not directed toward the well-being of all, to the equipment of the saints, to the work of ministry, or to the building up of the body of Christ, he says. Burkhauer is critical here of what another Dutch theologian, uh, a predecessor of uh, of, of uh, Burkhauer at the Free University, Hermann Bavink, had called in the late 19th century the church dissolving dynamism of Protestantism, its prevailing sectarianism, or as Leslie Newbegin once put it, the tendency to endless vociferation which has characterized Protestantism in its actual history. Forcefully, Burkhauer urges that this unity of the church stands under God's criticism. So now I turn to my, my, three, uh, my three questions, very briefly. The unity of the church. Burkhauer is persuaded, see I've been discipled by a reformed Calvinist, okay? But it so happens that what he says is Catholic teaching. Burkhauer is per persuaded that the New Testament teaches that there is only one church here and now, rather than many churches. And this church is the concrete, visible church. And thus, he says, the being of the church as willed by God implies unity. This unity, it's an actual unity. This unity is neither sp uh, merely spiritual, a spiritual invisible reality, as it were, a kind of a platonic entity, nor is it merely an eschatological reality. There's both Unity is actual, it's a gift, but it's also a task, as we'll see. Just as Catholicity is a gift, but it's also a task. The call to unity, Burkhauer writes, is not an eschatological plus. Rather, it points to unity in the present. Unanimity, being in full accord and of one mind on the basis of Christ's power. In short, unity is both a gift and a task, I, I add. Consequently, as Burkhauer, our conviction that the plural for church is an inner contradiction is confirmed by the numerous characterizations of the Church of Christ in the whole of the New Testament, the one people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the building of God, he says, the flock of the Good Shepherd. These images indicate in various ways the one reality of the Church. Therefore, he adds, unity belongs essentially to the Church's being. The expression one Church is really a pleonasm. That means it's really, it's redundant. It's like saying John is a uh, unmarried bachelor. Unmarried bachelor is a redundancy, it's a pleonasm. Uh, to say that he's a bachelor, we already know that he's unmarried. Of course, there is diversity, Burkhauer adds, but it is the pluriformity of the church, not a plurality of churches. Yes, there is division among Christians, Disunity in the one church, but this division is the fruit of human sin, and such disunity, antagonism, and conflict is sharply placed under the criticism of the gospel. There can be, Leslie Newbigin says in his 1952 book, The Household of God, there can be no unity without, uh, there can be no reconciliation without repentance, because we can't assume that the diversity that exists is, is, is not really divisive. Huh. My second point, the where of the church. In connection with Burkhauer's point that ecclesial unity exists in the present, 
Vatican II's position is in agreement with him, and hence its position is incompatible with the view that unity has been lost, exists only in fragments, and consequently that it must be rediscovered and restored through ecumenical dialogue. Accordingly, Vatican II, like Birkhauer, rejects any form of ecclesiological relativism or pluralism, quite simply the notion that there are many churches, with the Catholic Church just being one among many, a fragment of a larger whole. The Catholic Church, here I quote uh, Cardinal Casper in his book, The Catholic Church, Nature, Reality, and Mission, he says, the Catholic Church is convinced that it alone contains uh, it alone contains the fullness of all means of salvation and that, and that that fullness is actually present in her. Only in it, the Church of Jesus Christ, so the Church that Christ founded, subsists in its own right alone uh, in an undetachable and lasting way from the Catholic Church. Therefore, the essential unity of the Church is already in it. It's a gift. It's not something that humans established. Huh? It's something that's Trinitarian, God-given, a gift of God, uh, grounding the church. But it's also, as, I'll, as I've said, it's also a task. So, um, uh, yes, its unity is flawed because of the divisions. The ecumenical dialogue is to heal these wounds. Through it, the imperfect unity is to be brought to full unity. This dialogue is not only an exchange of ideas, Casper says, but also of gifts. The goal of ecumenism is therefore not, not as such the return of the others, but a joint growth in Catholic unity. The Church of Jesus Christ then does not subsist in other churches and ecclesial communities. Yes, there are elements of truth and sanctification that exist outside the visible boundaries of the Church. And these exist in ecclesial communities. In other words, those elements of truth and sanctification uh, that, are, uh, that, are, that we can receive as gifts, uh, uh, they, they don't exist in an ecclesial vacuum. They're ecclesially embodied in communities, in particular churches that have some ecclesial status. Huh? The written, the, confessing the written word of God, the life of grace, faith, hope, and love, and other gifts of the Holy Spirit, and visible elements of sanctification and truth, such as baptism. To the extent that these elements are present, the Church of Jesus Christ is efficaciously present in these particular churches. Burkhauer poses the right question here. If this recognition of positive traces of the Church the Church, capital C, in other churches is not to result in ecclesiological relativism or pluralism, how is one to think concretely of the relation to other churches? And later, this is from Burkhauer's two-volume work on the Church, later he gives the answer of, of Vatican II, the, what, is, what I think is arguably the answer of Vatican II. And he says, since the relationship between churches is not simply a question of confession or denial of truth, the problem arises, he says, as to the degree of Catholicity in the understanding of God's truth. Fullness is not always contrasted to emptiness, but also to incompleteness and, and partiality. In other words, in other words, what Burkhauer is saying there is that 
outside the visible boundaries of the church, according to Catholic teaching, outside the visible boundaries of the church, you don't simply have an ecclesial wasteland, uh, an emptiness. Uh, uh, the historic churches of the Reformation, let us say, have a positive ecclesial status to a greater or lesser degree. So there's incompleteness there. There isn't emptiness there. There isn't wasteland there, ecclesial wasteland. There's incompleteness and partiality. Furthermore, the church is also related to the fullness of Christ because when, 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 when Catholic, Catholic ecclesiology states that the church contains the fullness of the means of salvation, well, of course, the fullness of the means of salvation are a gift. They are a gift. They're related to the fullness of Christ and the fullness of God and Christ's all-sufficient work to which nothing can be added, nothing need be added. So the church is also related to the fullness of Christ and the fullness of God. In the fullness that the church received, she is directed toward fullness because it's not a static Catholicity. Catholicity is a gift, but it's also a task. And so Burkhauer says that is the fantastic dynamic characterizing Paul's view of the church. And through it, he wants to make the church rest in Christ's all-sufficient work. Catholicity then, like unity, stands in the light of gift and task. So, the one church of Jesus Christ and the many churches. Here's the dilemma that, we, that I think uh, Catholics need to avoid regarding the question about unity and diversity of churches in the one and only church, the Catholic Church. Either correctly affirming that the Church of Christ fully and totally subsists alone in its own right in the Catholic Church, because the entire fullness of the means of salvation are present in her, and then implausibly, implausibly denying that Orthodoxy, capital O, and the historic churches of the Reformation, denying that their church is in any real sense whatsoever, such that there exists an ecclesial wasteland, just emptiness, outside the visible boundaries of the church. That's, a, that's totally implausible. That, it's not true. It's not, a, it's not just implausible, it's not true. On the other hand, remember Burkhauer's question, how do we recognize vestiges of the church in these other particular churches without becoming ecclesiological relativists? So that's the other dilemma. Rightly affirming that, there are that they are churches in some sense, small c, churches in some sense in a lesser or greater degree. I say that because there are many churches now that, that it's a much lesser degree. So, rightly affirming that they are churches in some sense in a lesser or greater degree to the extent that there exist ecclesial elements of truth and sanctification in them, but then wrongly, wrongly accepting uh, ecclesiological relativism or pluralism, meaning thereby that the one church of Christ Jesus subsists in many churches, with the Catholic Church being merely one among many churches. Vatican II distinguishes between unity and uniformity, and hence does not require uniformity in four distinct and specific areas of the church's life. Not even with respect to theological formulations does it require unity. All you have to do is line up Augustine, Aquinas, John Henry Newman, and many others. They, they're saying the same thing, but they're saying it in a different way. Because they live in different contexts. They've been influenced by different philosophical frameworks and so on. 
Spirituality. There's a great diversity of spiritual uh, uh, spirituality in, in the Catholic Church. Liturgical forms. Yes, most Catholics are Latin Rite Catholics, but that's not the only liturgical rite in the Catholic Church. There is Byzantine Rite Catholics, also in full communion with Rome. Syro-Malabar, Coptic Rite Catholics, and so on. And even matters of canon, canonical, you know, there's the, the code of canon law of, of, of the East and the West, and, and so on. Unitatis ret integratio states, all in the church must preserve unity and essentials, but let all, according to the gifts they have received, enjoy a proper freedom in their various forms of spiritual life. In the religious orders, Franciscans, Dominicans, uh, Jesuits, Augustinians, uh, and so on in their different liturgical rites, and even in their different theological elaborations, their different theological formulations. Here's where the, of revealed truth, here's where the Lorenian hermeneutics kicks in. In all things let charity prevail. If they are to, to the, true to this course of action, they will be giving ever better expression to the authentic Catholicity and apostolicity of the church. It is significant that Vatican II refers in particular to, quote, the differences in theological expression of doctrine. Expression, not, new, not, that, there, not, not that there are, uh, you know, different doctrines uh, at one level. No, it's the different, theolog different theological expressions of doctrine. In other words, different theological traditions, quote, have developed differently their understanding and confession of God's truth. I, I, you know, here's an example. We have, a, in the Catholic Church, we have, a, you know, in the liturgical calendar, the solemnity of Christ the King. Well, my mind has been shaped by Kuyperian Calvinism regarding the Lordship of Christ. So I'm sitting there waiting for the priest to talk about the Lordship of Christ over all areas of human life and so on and so on. And sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't. But I think... The Dutch Reformed tradition, theologically, Kuyper, Bavink, Burkhauer, and others have given a deeper expression of some aspect of revealed mystery, the revealed truth that we share as Protestants and Christian, as Protestants and Catholics. Huh? It is hardly surprising that the Korean Ecumenism stated in paragraph 17. If from time to time one tradition has come nearer to a full appreciation of some aspect of a mystery of revelation than the other, or has expressed it to better advantage. In such cases, these various theological expressions are to be considered often as mutually complementary rather than conflicting. So Kuyperian Calvinism on the Lordship of Christ, even on a doctrine of creation, is not incompatible with Catholicism. It, I think it gives a, a richer uh, a, a complementary but richer understanding of that aspect of the mystery of revelation. And I think this claim about the legitimacy of diverse theological expression and articulation is at the root of the rejection of the notion of an ecumenism of return. An ecumenism of return. What does that mean? That means that, that the goal of ecumenism is merely that all Protestants come back to the Catholic Church. Now, um, what's being, in rejecting an ecumenism of return, what's being rejected? I put it this way. Um, sometimes people, since I was baptized Catholic and 
uh, responded to the gospel in a Protestant context, blah, 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 for 22 years. I finally went ahead to the Catholic Church, I say. I do not describe myself. I reject the concept of reverts. People call me a revert. I'm not a revert. Why am I not a revert? Because reversion suggests that those 22 years were chronicles, you all read Malcolm Muggeridge's book, chronicles of wasted time, and that those 22 years uh, have to be rejected in their totality. And so when reversion suggests that I went back and somehow all of those 22 years were irrelevant, I think that those 22 years actually brought me ahead so that, I, so that at, at some point all these factors converged and I went ahead into the Catholic Church. So uh, if an ecumenism, of, of, if, if an ecumenism of, uh, of return implies that, then, then of course the Church rejects that. But by rejecting the ecumenism of return, the church is not implying that there are many churches and hence urging the acceptance of ecclesiological pluralism or relativism, with the Catholic Church being merely one among many churches. Rather, we can no longer speak of a simple return to the church as an ecumenical demand for non-Catholics when that is taken to mean, again, as Yves Congar rightly states, quote, absorption or annexation by the Catholic Church as if they themselves, as if, for instance, the historic churches of the Reformation had no contribution to make to us as full and as Catholic a realization as possible of Christianity. No. That's, that's, this is what is at the heart of receptive ecumenism, that ecumenism is an exchange of gifts. Gift, yes, the church, the Catholic Church holds that actual unity already exists. That's the starting point. But unity is also not, it's not just a gift, it's a task. Just as Catholicity is a gift, not just a task. I'm coming to my end here. In other words, our separate, separated brethren have a real contribution to make to the fuller realization of the church's unity. The, a unity which actually already exists and to the fullness of understanding of living and living of Catholic truth. As Vatican II stated, they may come nearer to a fuller theological appreciation and expression of some aspect of revealed truth, and these various theological expressions are to be considered often as mutually complementary rather than conflicting. Now, complementary because some of the things that we commonly confess as Christians can be said differently. So some of the things that are said differently are they're saying the same thing. But of course, there are limits to that. Because some of the things that we say, we're saying different things. We're saying different things about the papacy, about Mary's place in the plan of salvation, even to a certain extent about the sacramental life of the church. In the words of the decree on ecumenism, in dialogue, one inevitably comes up against the problem of the different formulations where doctrine is expressed in the various churches and ecclesial communities. This is more than one consequence for the work of ecumenism. In the first place, with regard to doctrinal formulations, which differ from those normally in use in the community to which one belongs, it is certainly right to determine whether the words involved say the same thing. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. 
In this regard, ecumenical dialogue, which prompts the parties involved to question each other, to understand each other, and to explain their positions to each other, makes surprising discoveries possible. Intolerant polemics and controversies have made incompatible assertions out of what was really the result of two different ways of looking at the same reality. Nowadays, we need to find a formula which, by capturing re the reality in its entirety, will enable us to move beyond partial readings and eliminate false interpretations. So in sum, I started out by trying to lay out what, I, what, what seems to me to be the project of creative renewal of resourcements of uh, Vatican II, a Lerinian hermeneutics, as I call it, uh, which, is, which, which draws on, refers us, in John XXIII's opening address, refers us back to Vatican I, which asserts the same thing about creative renewal. Um, and Vatican I is really quoting um, uh, Vincent of Lorenz, uh, the fifth century monk. I then went on to say something in answering the question why I thought that uh, the Catholic Counter-Reformation is over. It's over because of the nature of ecumenical dialogue and its attendant notion of receptive ecumenism, where ecumenism is really an exchange of gifts. At the level of formulations, we deepen our understanding, grow in our understanding of, uh, Christian, uh, of the Christian revelation, and that can lead to development. And then I looked at these, uh, these two questions regarding the nature of the church, the nature of the church's unity, and then where is that unity most visibly manifested? Uh, I gave you what seemed to me the, the Catholic answer to those, to those questions. And then I went on to the third question to ask, well, what's the relationship between unity and diversity within the one church? Let me end with a quote from Cardinal Ratzinger, 1983, which summarizes what I've been trying to say. He says, the Catholic tradition as Vatican II newly formulated it is not determined by the notion that all existing churches with a small c, are only fragments of a true church that exists nowhere and that one would have to try to create by assembling these pieces. Such an idea would render the church purely into a work of man. Also, the Second Vatican Council specifically states that the only church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. As we know, this subsists replace the earlier is, the only church is the Catholic Church. Because there are also many true Christians and much that is truly Christian outside the visible boundaries of the church. However, the latter insight and recognition which lies at the very foundation of Catholic ecumenism does not mean that from now on a Catholic would have to view the true church only as a utopian idea that may, that may ensue in the end of days. The true church is reality an existing reality, even now, without having to deny that others are Christian or to dispute the fact that their communities have an ecclesial character. However, that unity of the one church that already exists indestructibly is a guarantee for us that this greater unity or greater Catholicity will happen someday. Thank you.